Welcome back to another week here on MWO Sports. Ryan Drury here. I'll be joined as always by Clarkie and Steve Sabrin. Lots to dig into in this one. We will be joined by Blue Jays play-by-play voice Dan Schulman to talk about the Jays and their impressive streak as they look to make the playoffs in the coronavirus shortened Major League Baseball season. Then we'll be joined by Eric Smith, Raptors analyst and voice on the radio. He will join us to talk about that dramatic double overtime Game 6 win as we gear up for Game 7 between the Raptors and the Celtics. And of course, at the end of the show, we'll be joined by our sports betting expert, Chris Abbott from CoolBet.co with some hot picks heading into the weekend. You're listening to and watching MWO Sports brought to you by CoolBet.co. This is MWO Sports. Hey everybody, welcome back to MWO Sports, brought to you by CoolBet.co. Ryan Drury alongside Clarkie and Steve Savern. We've got another great special guest on the program to talk some baseball. You know this man from play-by-play action on NCAA Hoops and Major League Baseball on ESPN. And of course, the Blue Jays on Sportsnet. He also hosts a great podcast called A Swing and a Belt. Dan Schulman joins us. Dan, how are you? I'm doing great. How are you guys doing? Mr. Clarkie, how are you, sir? I'm good, Dan. Long time no talk. Yeah, we go way, way, way back. We are old. We are old for sure. Absolutely. <laughs> and now you're working with the Blue Jays full time. Let's just start where, with the weird season we're having, Dan, and you're doing games in the studio. How has that been so far? It's different. So we've got a pretty good setup. I don't know if you guys have seen any pictures. I tweeted out a few pictures a while back and um, you know, they've given us every look they can give us, every monitor you can give, but it's still not the same as being at the ballpark. There are certain tricky plays, like if somebody is stealing or somebody's trying to score from second on a single, it's hard to see that sometimes in the studio. But, you know, I've been very transparent with viewers. If there's something I don't see, I just laugh and say, sorry, I didn't see that. And hopefully everybody understands and they're just happy to have sports on television. So, um, but really the gang at Sportsnet has made it as easy um, as it can be. Um, and you're right, Chris, like I've gone from doing nothing to doing games every single day. So um, it's fun. They're interesting and it's great working again. I, I didn't enjoy not working for four months. I enjoyed it for a few days, but I didn't enjoy it for four months like everybody, I'm sure. So I'm happy to be back working again. And Dan, you guys continue to do such a great job, and uh, so are the Blue Jays. They just finished up a stretch of 28 games in 27 days, and lo and behold, they're two games up on the Yankees as we record this. They're having a great season. Um, Some of the fundamentals are a little off, but overall, would you say that they're overachieving, or are, are you not surprised by the team's stretch here? I I would say, honestly, that given the injuries they've had, I think they're overachieving a little bit. I thought they had a chance to be a 500 team and maybe compete for the last playoff spot. And ultimately, that could be where they wind up. We don't know how it'll go over the next three weeks or so. But when you consider that Bo Bichette's only played 14 of their 43 games at the time that we record this, um, that now Teoscar Hernandez, who was you know, talking his way into the MVP conversation has been out for the last few days that Ken Giles has missed basically the entire season that Jordan Romano has been out for the last couple of weeks that they lost three starting pitchers. And now that Rowdy Telez is out as well, I think it's kind of amazing that they are 24 and 19. And, you know, some guys have done great, better than expected. The bullpen has been tremendous. Uh, and I, I hope they can hang on. They're very resilient. They're very uh, feisty. They don't give up. Like they're really, really fun to watch. 
but there are still 17 games left to play, and there are still teams chasing them. Uh, and hopefully they'll have Bo Bichette and Ken Giles back and maybe Nate Pearson back a few days after that. That would help as well. But honestly, I, I think they've done better than expected given all the injuries they've had. Dan, about the uh, bullpen and the pitching staff, um, looking at their starting rotation, it's almost been a pitch by committees. And it kind of reminds me of what the Milwaukee Brewers did a couple seasons ago in the playoffs. Do you think this is something that they'll continue to do even if they get some starters back in some circumstances given the success they've had? I think they're going to have to do it for the rest of the season. Yeah. Um, I think they've got a lot of faith in Hunjin Ryu. I think they've got a decent amount of faith in Taiwan Walker. And as we've seen, I don't know how much faith they have in guys like Tanner Roark and Chase Anderson going three times through the order. So I think what they think their strength is, is the depth of the pitching staff that here comes a Robbie Ray. Here comes a Ross Stripling. Here comes a Thomas Hatch or a Julian Merriweather or an Anthony Kay or a Shun Yamaguchi. And I think they're hoping to always have a fresh arm in there. So uh, I think depending on the starter, I think we're going to see some piggybacking guys getting four inning starts and then somebody else coming in for three innings. Um, I think one of those back end of the rotation guys would have to be pitching incredibly well to be allowed to pitch into the sixth inning. Ryu, yes. Walker, maybe the other guys. I don't know. I think they're going to try to beat you with numbers. And Milwaukee's a good comp. It's similar to what the Brewers did in the playoffs a couple of years ago. You couldn't do this if it's a 162-game season. Um, you would just destroy your bullpen. But with only 17 games to go and with expanded rosters this year, 28 instead of 26, they've got two extra pitchers on the staff. I think they can, I think they can do it to the finish line. I, I noticed today the Jays have used 25 pitchers already this season, which seems like a large number to me. But then I, I saw they used like 39 last year. But I, I, I don't like how they're doing it, but I'm not the manager and I'm not playing or winning because they are winning. But my big problem with what they're doing with the pitching staff is I don't know if a guy's a, a reliever or a starter or what. And what did you think of uh, – uh, Tanner Roark's uh, comments. He didn't seem that he likes what's going on either with his comments right. yesterday. Well, back to Milwaukee for a second. So they didn't really refer to guys as starters or relievers. They just called them outgetters. And mm -hmm. everybody's job is to get out. So everybody's got a different, uh, you know, different roles, but they're all outgetters. Uh, Tanner Roark was very outspoken. I thought one interesting thing he said was he's not angry at Charlie Montoya or Pete Walker. He blamed the computers. And what Tanner Roark is saying when he blamed the computers is the analytics department in the front office that says this guy shouldn't be allowed to face a lineup a third time because his numbers against the lineup the third time are ABC. Uh, and this is this is the fight that's going on in baseball a lot. Every team has brought in analytics to a significant extent. But then also, does the eye test matter? If a guy's pitching really well, like Chase Anderson uh, two starts ago, I guess it was, maybe it was last start, was pitching great, and they didn't let him go out for the sixth inning. He'd retired 12 in a row, and his pitch count was low, and they didn't let him go out for the sixth inning. Uh, so you've kind of got this fight between old school and new school, and new school's winning right now. The, the, the teams are being run, uh, I think, more by analytics than by feel. And I sit beside a guy when I do the games in Buck Martinez, who played in the 70s and 80s, and, you know, he's an old school guy. And he says, well, what about reading swings? And what about looking at the stuff and being able to see if a guy still got it or not? And it's a fine line between, you know, how you balance those two. But I hear what you're saying, Clarky, because I think there are some times when the eye test and the analytics are totally divergent. They're on opposite sides of the spectrum. But 
nine times out of ten, the analytics are going to win. Um, chosen. I don't mean they're the better choice. I mean, nine times out of ten, that's the decision that will be made. Speaking of feeling, Dan, what's your feeling on the rest of the schedule? The Jays face the Mets, uh, the Phillies, and the Yankees a number of more times. Looking at uh, what the teams have done, a very winnable series for the Jays. Uh, what are your thoughts? Well, they get Jacob DeGrom in the first game of the Mets series, so that's going to be hard. Um, so if they're going to win the series, I'd recommend they win the last two because it's going to be hard to win the first one. They've still got seven games with the Yankees, and the Yankees aren't great right now, but they're not as bad as they look. And the Phillies are a different team than the Blue Jays saw whenever it was, four or five weeks ago. They're one of the hotter teams around right now. So um, as much as I commend the Blue Jays for where they are and how hard they've played and how they've pulled out all these victories, I don't think they're home and cooled off yet. Essentially, they're like three or four games in a playoff spot ahead of the ninth-place team. So three or four up with 17 to go. I remember 1987. Chris, you remember 1987. Three and a half up on the Tigers with a week to go. They didn't win another game. Now, I'm not saying that's going to happen. I'm just saying they're in a good position, but they haven't clinched anything yet. And again, I worry sometimes about all the injuries and whether at some point it just becomes too much. Now, again, if Bo Bichette is back and if Ken Giles is back and if Nate Pearson comes back, that's great. And maybe Teoscar Hernandez, we don't know. But to take Teoscar Hernandez and Rowdy Telez out of the middle of that lineup, like the lineup they had on Wednesday night against the Yankees, was very thin. It's just it's not a good enough lineup to win them a lot of games. So uh, now Guriel had the night off as well. You stick Guriel back in there and if Bo's back, it's a better lineup. But I, I think they're going to have to play well to make the playoffs. Um, I think teams are chasing them, and, and I hope they can overcome these injuries and stay as strong as they've been. Hey, I just wanted to ask you a quick question about the Yankees and uh, a guy who I'm sure you know well, who you worked right beside on ESPN, Aaron Boone, their manager. What kind of pressure do you think he's facing right now? And do these guys got to do better or is his job on the line? I don't think his job is on the line this year. I, I think because the season is so short and so crazy and so unprecedented, I think there will be some passes given if stuff goes sideways on teams. And because they've been without Judge and without Stanton and without Severino um, and without Urshela now, and they were without Torres before, uh, I, I don't think you can hold him responsible for that stuff. Same with Charlie Montoyo in Toronto. Same with Kevin Cash in Tampa Bay. The Rays are playing great in spite of all the injuries they have. So I don't think Aaron's under any pressure. I, I think next year um, is a huge year. They've got to find a way to keep Judge and Stanton healthy. Like this is happening over and over and over right now. So, Yes, there is pressure because anything in New York involves pressure. Managing the Yankees involves pressure, but I don't think it's hot seat. You know, he might lose his job pressure just yet. Dan, let's talk about next season. I mean, obviously looking forward, you mentioned we're in just the craziest baseball season we've maybe ever seen. And they obviously had to expand the playoff picture because of that. There is talk that there might be, you know, some interest in keeping this expanded playoff format going forward. Who knows if they'll actually do that? What are your thoughts on that? Would you be in favor of keeping this expanded playoff? I don't know if I'd be in favor of eight teams in each league, and I kind of want to see how the playoffs play out, but here's one reason why. You're the Los Angeles Dodgers, and you are clearly the best team in baseball, and you don't get a bye. You get a two out of three, just like everybody else gets. Now, that's the way it works in the NHL, 
for our entire lives, right? Like the one seed's not getting a buy. That's the way it works in the NBA. The one seed's not getting a buy. But I wonder in baseball if they'll want to give some sort of a reward for the top team or the top two teams in each league. So if you let seven teams in in each league, the number one seed gets a buy. If you let six teams in in each league, one and two get a buy. So I think that that'll be considered. But at the same time, the more teams you let in, the more excitement there is in more markets. Like, look how excited Toronto is right now. Look how excited, you know, Baltimore's still hanging around. Detroit's still hanging around. So I, I, I think it all depends on are you trying to generate more excitement in more markets or are you trying to reward the best teams and give them the advantage they have earned going into the postseason? So I, I think it'll depend on what happens in the playoffs. If the Dodgers lose in the first round, I think that's going to cause a lot of angst, and, and then the conversations will begin. Let's talk about the uh, playoffs, Dan, uh, the AL East uh, and, and the rest of the American League. Um, right now, who do you think the front runners are? The American League is very interesting to me. I mean, I have a tremendous amount of respect for Tampa Bay, you know, even with all the injuries. The depth they have on the position player's side, they can always bring three good bats off the bench to pinch hit and get favorable matchups. And in spite of having 11 different pitchers uh, on the IL this year, they are still really dangerous. So I would never look past Tampa Bay. Uh, I also think Oakland is great. Their bullpen is just absolutely a lockdown bullpen. Their starting pitching isn't great, but their bullpen is great. And sometimes you can, you know, Milwaukee your way through a postseason and, and try to figure it out. To me, those are the two best teams. But you know what? Again, with a two out of three in the first round, like Cleveland's got unbelievable starting pitching. Chicago on uh, the White Sox on any given day could hit seven home runs in a game and just overpower you. Um, and, and I think it's going to be wide open. It kind of reminds me more of like what the Stanley Cup playoffs are like more often than not, where upsets aren't even really upsets anymore because everybody is so bunched together. So I'm not trying to sit on the fence, but uh, I don't know if there's an overwhelming favorite in the American League. I could see I could see any team doing well. I mean, even the Blue Jays, if the Blue Jays got in as one of the bottom seeds, Hunjin Ryu on any given night is capable of being great. And I think Taiwan Walker is too. And, and, you know, what happens if the Blue Jays threw a guy like Walker for five innings and then came out and went, you know, Merriweather, Barucki, Hatch, uh, and then Giles or, or Bass at the end of a game? I mean, that's, those are really good options for them. So um, I, I think the American League is incredibly wide open heading into the postseason. Dan, I'd like your thoughts on potential MVP candidates. I think we're deep enough into the season to talk about that. Obviously, you mentioned Hernandez like he was a guy that deserves some shouts for the Jays, but you mentioned Cleveland and their pitching. Man, Shane Bieber is doing things on the mound that is just insane. I think he's a lock for the Cy Young. He's got a sub one whip. Could he conceivably be an MVP guy as well? Yeah, he would get my vote, actually. And I know pitchers rarely win, uh, rarely win it. I, I'm not one who doesn't think they should be eligible or, or able to win it. I think if they're the most important player on the team, um, they should win the award. If they want to call it the most valuable position player award, then, we, then that's a different conversation. But it's the most valuable player, and pitchers are players, too. And I know they have their own award. He is a lock to win the Cy Young right now. But I, I think especially given that they sent out Clevenger and Plesak after they violated the COVID protocols. And he kept going out there every five days and winning a game and saving the bullpen and keeping them in a playoff position. I think I would go with Shane Bieber right now. 
Dan, you mentioned we go way back. When you mentioned 1987, I started thinking about some of the moments we had um, together. And one of the things that I tell people about all the time and most one of the most amazing moments I remember working with you on spending time with you was when we were in Philadelphia for the Blue Jays World Series. And we were sitting up in the stands uh, just like two, two Blue Jay fans, but we were kind of quiet because Philadelphia can be a dangerous yeah. place. But it was a cold, rainy, misty night. Um, the Jays and Phillies were in a, quite a battle. Um, and we were listening to sports radio down there, I think, if I remember correctly, during the game that they weren't actually uh, carrying the game, but they were taking calls. And just the emotions throughout the game was amazing. And the Jays ended up winning that game 15-14. Um, you've had a lot of great moments, obviously, in your career. What are some of the ones that stand out, though? Well, that was fun. I do remember going down there. I mean, we were young, and the fact that somebody would actually pay for us to get on an airplane and put us up in a hotel and send us to another city, I thought was the craziest thing in the world. And, and uh, I remember that. It was cold and rainy, and it was 15 to 14. And I think I remember, like, I think our seats were in the upper deck above home plate mm -hmm. is what I remember. They weren't great seats, but we, we were just so happy to be there. And so we would go do our show in the afternoon and then go watch the game at night, like who had a better job than, than Chris and I had back at that time. But I, I've been very fortunate, um, beyond very fortunate, to, to have some great experiences. Um, you know, college basketball, um, you know, as Chris knows from way back when, I was always a huge basketball fan. But they didn't let me talk about basketball on the station back then. This was before the Raptors. And I used to like doing college basketball updates. I, I liked Notre Dame back then. I would always have a stringer. We'd call in and get Notre Dame scores or college basketball scores, and I'd get yelled at wasting money and long distance phone calls and all that stuff. Um, so to, to be able to do college basketball has been unbelievably exciting for me to go to places like Kansas and Duke. I've done um, Duke Carolina games the last 11 or 12 years, did the final four twice for ESPN international and just have been, you know, Kentucky, Michigan state, UCLA, just so, so lucky. Um, baseball. I've called a couple of no hitters, which is really cool. Called a Matt Garza, no hitter and a Jake Arrieta, no hitter. Um, for ESPN Radio, have done the playoffs for the last however many years and have done the World Series for the last nine years. Um, 2011, David Freeze of St. Louis, tripling in the ninth, homering in the 11th in game six to win that game. I did the Jose Bautista uh, bat flip game for ESPN Radio in 2015. And to do that in my hometown, um, my parents and two of my sons were at the game watching the game. That was really cool to call the Cubs winning the World Series in 2016 again for ESPN Radio, all that stuff. And, and even way, way, way back, 1994, I got a chance to go to an Olympics, like out of nowhere. And nobody remembered, well, Chris might remember it, but nobody remembers it but friends and family for the most part. Not even friends, but my family doesn't even remember it. I called hockey at an Olympics in 1994. Um, Don Chevrier was the A guy. He did all the Canada games. I was the B guy. I did all the non-Canada games. But again, I was 27 years old. And CTV did the Olympics, so they didn't have a stable of people like CBC had then. Um, and John Shannon uh, offered me the opportunity to do the World Championship of Basketball in Toronto in the summer of 94. And uh, a few months earlier, I did the Olympics in Lillehammer, Norway. And it was unbelievable. You know, uh, that was the one where Forsberg beat Canada with the goal in the, in the shootout. And Chevrier called that game. I was the reporter at that game. But I got a chance to call Sweden games and Russia games and Finland games, and, and it was fantastic. So um, I, I've been really lucky. And, and you know what? But now coming back, 
you know, having been away from the Blue Jays for many years and coming back, I'd be lying if I if I said I didn't have an emotional attachment to this team. Uh, I was at the first game, April seventh, nineteen seventy seven. Uh, you know, I was I grew up a huge Blue Jays fan, and and I've got a lot of family and friends who are Blue Jays fans, and I've always lived in Toronto and never moved, and and. It's really fun kind of having an emotional investment. Like you hear it with Bonesy and hockey, right? Joe Bowen and the, you know, how emotional he is about the Maple Leafs. Um, you know, when you, when you, when you call games for the team, you grew up following that's different. Uh, not better, not worse, but just different, even than calling Sunday night baseball or something like that. And, you know, a little bit more of my heart is in it because it's the team from my hometown. Uh, our next guest is actually uh, a guy we both know, produced your show, Eric Smith, coming on Talk Raptors. Just quickly before we go, what do you think? Can they win game seven? Yeah, I would never count them out. And I haven't been able to listen to Eric or to watch games because they're always up against Blue Jays games. So I'm working, mm-hmm. but, uh, working all the time. But they're still the champs and they still got Kyle Lowry. And I, I don't think he's going to let them lose. So, yeah, I'll take the Raptors in game seven. We are on that train with you, man. Dan, we really appreciate you doing this. You can catch Dan calling all the great Blue Jays action. Hopefully some more great memories to come. Uh, I would love to see them make the playoffs. You can follow Dan on Twitter at DShulman underscore ESPN. Dan Shulman, we really appreciate this, man. Thanks so much. Thanks, guys. Chris, good to see you. Thanks again to Blue Jays analyst and play-by-play voice Dan Shulman. We'll take a quick break here and come back with Raptors analyst Eric Smith here on MWO Sports, brought to you by CoolBet.co. This is MWO Sports. Welcome back to MWO Sports, brought to you by CoolBet.co. Ryan Drury still here with Clarkie and Steve Sabrin. We've got another great special guest on the show. Raptors analyst Eric Smith joins us. Eric, how are you? Good, guys. How you doing? Doing very well. Uh, and obviously, Raptors Nation doing very well after a very dramatic Game 6 double OT victory. Kyle Lowry just put the team on his back. Norm Powell making an impact. I mean, Eric, what a dramatic win. One that will probably live on in Raptors lore for a long, long time. Yeah, I, I'll tell you what, I, I look back at the history for the Raptors and their postseason history, and obviously there, there wasn't a lot of playoff history up until the last uh, three quarters of a decade. Uh, but at the same time, when I, when I think back even to the Vince years and, and you know, when you had the combination of Calderon and Bosch as well, and as, as I say now, these last uh, uh, seven or so years with, with DeRozan and Lowry and, of course, Kawhi and the championship last year, this has got to rank to me in the top five all-time playoff games. When you consider... The drama of the moment, the stakes that were were there for the Raptors, obviously, you know, do or die uh, type scenario to go into double overtime. To me, this is it's got to be a top five game. And for the Raptors, as ugly as it looked in stretches in that game on Wednesday night, for them to be able to pull that out in spite of some of the struggles that many of the guys had individually as well. uh, Heck of a gutsy effort by this team. And now to me, I'd say this about any sport, any team. In a game seven, all bets are off. It's anybody's game now. And if the Raptors could actually pull this off and go back to a conference finals for a second straight year and put themselves in a position to maybe go to a championship and go to a finals again, I mean, what a huge, huge win uh, again on Wednesday night. Okay, I've been waiting to ask you this question since Wednesday night because uh, someone's got to explain to me why Nick Nurse stuck with Pascal Siakam. The guy was obviously struggling, couldn't make a basket. The luck was not on his side either, like a couple of uh, rollouts on the rim. Why did he stick with him? 
I think a couple of reasons I would say, Clarky. One of which I, I, I think, you know, even though it is potentially do or, do or die, and, and if you lose, you go home, and, and that's the end of your season, I think there still was a part of it thinking, this is arguably our franchise guy. This is the guy that we paid the max deal to. This is the guy that's our future. We can't risk losing him mentally, let alone physically, and putting him out there like that. I think that's one. But I'll give you an even better answer, I think, Clarky is as bad as he was playing or, or, or as, as rough as it was offensively for him to get going, I thought he was actually playing pretty damn well defensively and was doing a solid job on Jason Tatum and on Jalen Brown, more so on Tatum. And I think because of his length, because of his speed, because of uh, his ability to get into those passing lanes and affect shots, I think while we all focus, and, I, and I'm, I'm with you, I mean, it, I, I was watching it too thinking, man, he can't buy a bucket and you've got a Baca there who was going off earlier in the game. Could you have made that switch? But I think that what you were getting defensively from him, I think you didn't want to lose that. And that's probably why Nurse ultimately stuck with him. Because that, that listen, it wasn't just Pascal either. We go back and look and, and realize the Raptors did not score for the final four minutes and 24 seconds of the game. They had a 98-94 lead and then got skunked for almost five minutes. In fact, I know going into the second overtime, I looked down at one point and said it was 10-10 between both teams over the course of almost 10 full minutes of game action. So as bad as Pascal was, so was everybody else. So it really came down to defensively what he and so many others were doing. So now we get the emotion of a game seven, and you mentioned it's anybody's game. But what are some of the keys the Raptors have to follow in order to set themselves up for a win? I, you know, I, I, at the risk of sounding cliche here, I think the start is going to be key. And, and that might be the captain obvious statement for this interview and for, for everybody, because I think you all would agree, as, as would all the viewers watching and people listening and whatnot. I think that um, the Raptors in, in the games in which they have had a solid first quarter, been in it and or had a lead, they've certainly looked a lot better. They've, you know, when they've dug themselves a hole, and I thought last night, Wednesday night, it was going to be an issue as well. You dig that hole, you're down 8, 10, 12 points early it's tough to recover from. And we've seen them get their doors blown off in games one and five. So I think they have to come out uh, with a better start. And I think they have to set the tone early. They have to prove to be the aggressors. When they get into the paint, when they're finishing around the rim and getting those high percentage looks, I think they're a much better team than when they're just living on the perimeter. And I think when you go into the paint and you prove that you're willing to go in there and you want to go in there, that's when the perimeter will open up that much more because now that the defense is sucking in, they know they got to throw more bodies around the rim, and suddenly now your shooters are going to have more space on the perimeter. So I think you work inside out uh, and go from there. I think that does, you know, if those would be the two keys, those would be the two that stand out more than any for me. Chatting here with Raptors analyst Eric Smith here on MWO Sports, brought to you by CoolBet.co. Eric, uh, just plain and simple, is Kyle Lowry the greatest Raptor of all time? If you want me to keep my answer plain and simple, I'll just say yes. Uh, if you want me to expand on it, I'm happy to. But but Please. The, the, simple, the simple answer is yes. And interesting, you know, if we had this conversation a year ago, I still think my answer would have been uh, Kyle Lowry. And, and I'll give you the really long answer now. A couple of years ago, it was probably still DeMar DeRozan uh, and or Vince Carter. because And I still have a, a big spot in my head, let alone in my heart for Vince, in spite of uh, how things kind of ended for him in Toronto and, and, and many, and I don't know if any of you are, are part of this, many that still kind of carry the, the grudge or the angst for the way things went down. I, I kind of let bygones be bygones a long time ago with that. And I was lucky enough to get to know Vince on a bit of a personal level as well. Uh, and maybe that taints my, my view of things that I kind of was able to see through some of the other stuff. Um, so kind of take your pick, Vince, Damar, 
Uh, I don't think Chris Bosh is in that conversation for number one, but he's certainly a top five guy. And I'm not willing to give Kawhi the top spot because as great as he was last year, you can't say the greatest player ever was a guy that played one season with your team. As great as that one season was, as, as, as solid as he was on the floor, certainly, and even arguably, you know, I, I don't know if we'll say in the community, but within the organization, he was a decent dude. And he did do some charitable stuff. And he did kind of talk about Toronto. And he did get out and go to Blue Jay games and go out and sightsee and was, you know, children's hospitals out in Vancouver, let alone in Toronto. And, you know, he did his, he did his job on and off the floor. But I can't anoint a guy who was here for one season as the greatest ever. You want to put up a statue? You want to you want to give him a you know pictures all through Scotiabank Arena or even hang his jersey one day? Even that I'm lukewarm on. Fine, but he's not the greatest ever. When I talk about Kyle Lowry being the greatest ever, it is for five All Star appearances. It is for a championship. It is for even the Olympic gold medal, albeit with the U.S. team. All of which, by the way, are credentials that I think will land him in the Hall of Fame one day as well. But it's also active in the community, visiting the schools and the hospitals and doing his annual Thanksgiving turkey drive and, and, and taking care of, uh, you know, the underprivileged folks within our city and within our community. It's for being the leader of this team and stepping up, even at times or many times, in an ornery way with a chip on his shoulder, being the one who's the vocal guy talking to the media and, and, and trumpeting the city and the organization and representing this squad. So for all of those intangibles, let alone the X's and O's of what he does on the floor, 100% he is the greatest Raptor of all time. And the legend grows with every game that passes, it seems. Eric, I know you probably don't know a bigger Raptor fan than me, but I'm not up on my Celtics as well as I could be. Tell me about this Marcus Smart. He's He reminds me of Brad Marchand from the Boston Bruins. Like, just like, a, like I, I call him Marcus Smartass when I'm watching him. The guy is like an agitator, obviously. But what was he so ticked off at the end of the game? Like, it, like is he just trying to draw fouls the whole game? Yeah, you know what? And ironically, it, it, it comes right on the heels of him being named to the NBA's all-defensive team as well for a second straight year. I mean, the, the, the number one all-defensive team. The NBA has two, and he was on the, on the, the A squad. So, Clarkie, he's, he's a hell of a defender, one of the best in the league. But unfortunately, people maybe forget that or don't see that because they also see a guy that's flipping and flopping all over the place. Uh, you know, like a like a soccer guy or something, you know, and that's that's the tag that's being thrown on him <laughs> flopping around like, you know, did he learn this stuff overseas or something? Um, that That's the way he is. He's one of those guys. And you could probably say something similar to Lowry. And I'm not saying Lowry flops, but what I'm about to say, he's one of those guys. And, and to use your hockey analogy of Marshawn, probably a guy that you would love to have on your team mm-hmm. and you hate him, hate him when he's on the other squad. And that's that's Marcus Smart. He is an outstanding defensive player. He's proven to be a pretty solid three-point shooter as well. Uh, and he's a guy that just gets under your skin. And and I think, I don't know this for sure because nobody officially said anything on the record on this, but I think what that was last night was just kind of theatrics. It was, he thought he was fouled by, by Marcus Saul. I think the Raptors were pissed off that he flopped again and that he was throwing his body and basically gave himself a, a, you know, a personal suplex the way that kind of threw his body down and crashed his back and his, and his tailbone into the floor again. And I think the Raptors were calling him out for his flopping and for his theatrics. And I think he didn't like that, didn't like being called out. And it just kind of turned into a little, you know, a little dust up there, a little shove session at the end, which hopefully kind of carries over into game seven for both sides and, and ignites them all. Because he had a couple of those moments in that game. And if you remember back earlier in the series as well, he was actually fined $5,000 by the NBA for a flop that he had 
when he was running down the court and, and kind of took a little bit of a bump from Pascal Siakam and went flying through the saloon doors about 10 feet, and the league called him out for it. So uh, I think Toronto's just kind of had enough of him, and I think that's kind of why things, again, got a little uh, testy right towards the end there as the buzzer went. And one other question I want to know about the end of the game with 0.5 seconds. Um, Kyle was ticked off. Was he ticked off that the team called a timeout, which gave Boston an opportunity maybe to get a review on that, on the uh, play is who, who the ball went off out of bounds is he just looked ticked off. And it was like, why that? I don't even don't have a great no. answer for it. Okay. Cause it could just be that Kyle is just, that's just Kyle. <laughs> yeah. He's just, I think he's just, He's ticked off an order when he wakes up in the morning, it seems. Uh, it, it might have just been, yeah, the just, okay. you know, kind of be elongating the game when it didn't need to be. Uh, honestly, Clark, I don't have an answer for you because I, I was a bit confused and perplexed by it as well because it seemed like, a, you know, pretty much a no-brainer that the, the game was done and it was over. And, and, and it was also, to me, a, a call that, that uh, wasn't even close in terms of who the ball went off or whatever else. So yeah. uh, other than that, I don't have a great explanation yeah. for you. Okay, good. <laughs> so we know that the winner of the Boston-Toronto series will face Miami. Hopefully Toronto. Uh, out west, it's pretty exciting as well. Um, Lakers, Houston, Clippers seem to have a hold on their series against Denver. Uh, but my oh my, LeBron versus Kawhi would be quite the matchup in the Western Final. That really would. And and I'll tell you right off the bat, my prediction is already wrong because I said if it wasn't Toronto uh, in the finals again, and I and I thought that they had an ex- extremely good chance, and I still do. Uh, I, I kind of was taking the, the approach that after what they went through last year and then running roughshod through the league again this year, Milwaukee would not allow themselves to get bounced early, whether it be second round conference finals. This was Milwaukee's year. So I, 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 I had the Bucks slightly ahead of the Raptors, and I thought we might see a Milwaukee-Los Angeles Lakers final. Uh, so obviously my prediction was wrong. Uh, it's going to be you know, Boston, Toronto, or Miami uh, against who? Um, and the Clippers have certainly looked very good, as you said, against Denver. I think no disrespect to the Nuggets, as good as they are, uh, as great as Jamal Murray, the Canadian, has been in this postseason. And, and Nikola Jokic is an outstanding, outstanding player, not just big man, just player in general. Um, I don't think Denver's got enough firepower to knock off Kawhi and the Clippers. So I, I think that's a foregone conclusion that L.A.'s winning that series. Uh, Denver's not coming back from down 3-1. And I think the Lakers will beat Houston. Houston's a better team than Denver. They've got more firepower. They've got more weapons. But I just don't think uh, that they'll be able to sustain this and win, uh, you know, for the next five to, to come back from down 2-1 even against uh, the, the Lakers. So I fully expect it'll be a battle of L.A.'s uh, in the conference final. And it really does set up a, a potentially interesting finals in general because I think both of those two L.A. teams uh, would probably have a leg up or an edge over Miami, Toronto, or Boston. Uh, but at the same time, uh, I think as we're just seeing, even with the heat, um, things are different in the bubble right now. And I think we've also seen as we've gone on in the bubble that, you know, cliche again here, but it's true, defense matters in the playoffs, in, in all sports, and certainly NBA. If you go back a couple weeks ago, guys, we're seeing scores that were through the roof, whether it be in the eight, you know, tune-up games or even in the first round. There were a lot of high-scoring games. And I think as this postseason's gone on, we've seen the defense ratchet up and the teams that are left standing right now are the teams that can stop people, that can bring that defensive edge. And I think that could make a big, big difference uh, in both the conference finals, whomever the final four teams end up being. Uh, While we have you, want to get your thoughts uh, as well. We we learned last week that Steve Nash was named head coach of Brooklyn. Um, Your thoughts on uh, that announcement? 
I was surprised, first of all. I mean, completely shocked. It was out of the blue as far as I was concerned. I didn't hear any rumblings about it. So when I uh, was scrolling through my, my Twitter feed that morning and it popped up, I just I, I looked and thought, Steve Nash, four-year deal. I, I mean, normally something that big, you at least get a sniff of it. We didn't hear anything about it. Um, I'm a little bit surprised only in the sense that I never even, and I'm not going to sit here and claim to be bosom buddies with Steve Nash. I've you know talked to him and I know him a little bit, but you know we've never had personal conversations or anything in the last decade. Uh, so, but any conversations I've had with him, I never really knew or realized that he had that kind of coaching itch. Uh, he seemed to be really enjoying the retirement years and, and, and was kind of dipping his toe in the waters, I believe in the, in the Hollywood sort of like production studios and, and, and creating his own content online, social media and otherwise and whatnot. And I, he seemed to be kind of enjoying that life. And I know he was getting very active, uh, even within the soccer world in terms of uh, television shows and broadcasting and doing a regular vlog or podcast uh, type thing within his, his uh, soccer circles. So I didn't know that he really had this passion. I think it's a good fit, though, because of the way uh, that the Nets uh, are, are kind of moving forward with, uh, you know, the hell of a one-two punch that they have in Kyrie Irving and Kevin Durant. Uh, this may or may not be a good thing in terms of letting the players and, and you know, letting the, uh, the inmates run the asylum. But when you've got two major stars like that, I think you need to have a player's coach and you need to have those players input into who their coach is. And Kevin Durant is very close to Steve Nash, as is Kyrie Irving. And to have one of the best point guards in the league in Kyrie, now having one of the greatest point guards of all time as his head coach, I think can only be a good thing. Uh, and I think that Nash, with just his IQ for the game and his intelligence from the game, I, I have no doubt that he'll be able to succeed, especially being handed, arguably, one of the top three teams in the league, at least on paper, uh, when Durant and Irving are back healthy next year. So this could be a win-win in a lot of ways. And it really does set up the the kind of uh, power structure within the NBA where, you know, I, and we, we used to talk about this all the time. And I know Clarkie and I had these conversations 20 years ago. And, you know, you think about the, 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 the you know, the Jordan years in, in the Eastern Conference. But, oh, no, now the West is good. Oh, no, but it used to be the East. Things are cyclical. For everybody that wanted to talk about the West is best, well, take a look at the East right now uh, with with Brooklyn at full strength with Boston, with Toronto, and Miami, and Milwaukee, even keep Philadelphia slightly on the on the outside of that conversation. There are just a lot of good teams in the NBA right now, and especially with LeBron now kind of being in the twilight of, of his career, as good as he still is, I think that there is a lot of parity in the league in both East and West, and that should set up for a very competitive league for years to come because I don't know that there's truly one dynasty team any longer that's going to run roughshod for the next few years there are a lot of clubs that you can make the case for winning a championship both this year and i think in the uh, in the years to come well let's hope the raptors remain in that mix and hopefully they continue on uh, and win game seven it'll be very interesting you can catch him on raptors broadcast and of course on sportsnet 590 eric smith you can follow him at eric underscore smith very simple on twitter uh for great raptors insight eric we really appreciate you doing this man thanks for joining the show I appreciate it. And, I, and the only thing I will say is it's two underscores because there's about a million Eric Smiths in the world. So I had to throw two underscores in there. So it's that Eric, makes sense. Double underscore. So there you go. Thanks, guys. Thanks again to Raptors analyst Eric Smith. We'll take another quick break here and come back with our sports betting expert, Chris Abbott of CoolBet.co right here on MWO Sports brought to you by CoolBet.co. This is MWO Sports.
Welcome back to MWO Sports, brought to you by CoolBet.co to round things off for the week. As always, checking in with our sports betting expert, Chris Abbott from CoolBet.co. Chris, how are you? I'm doing great, fellas. How's everything going this week? Doing well. We're excited for a big Game 7 coming up just after the show. Raptors-Celtics, what are we thinking on the betting line? Oh, it's really tough, right? Because my heart wants to go with the Raptors, but I'm going to bet the Celtics is what we call in the business an emotional hedge. If the Celtics win, I get paid. If the Raptors win, I'm a happy man. So I'm going to take the Celtics uh, to win game seven. I love the emotional hedge. It's always a tough one, buddy. Uh, All right, let's move into Sunday. Obviously, NFL opener is done between Casey and Houston. Let's talk about Sunday's games. First Sunday of the year. Uh, Give us a couple of hot bets for us in the NFL. A couple of things I like. Over the last couple of years, the Tampa Bay Buccaneers have upset the New Orleans Saints early in the season, upset from a betting perspective, at least cover. Uh, so you got Tampa plus three and a half going in with the best team they've had in a while, we like to think. So uh, I'm going to take that bet for sure and put a little sprinkle on the money line at plus 156. And uh, I'm all in on the Arizona Cardinals this year, boys, and they're catching six and a half points uh, against San Francisco 49ers. Uh, historically, teams that played in the Super Bowl the year before uh, do start a little bit slowly. Uh, I also like the fact that there was no preseason here, so teams are on an even footing. Kyler Murray, Cliff Kingsbury, second year together. So I'm going to take plus six and a half and also touch this uh, money line for the underdog. Arizona Cardinals featuring one of the best receiving groups in the league, starring my favorite player, DeAndre Hopkins. I don't want to throw something at you without you knowing, but how are the Blue Jays and their World Series numbers looking? Is it worth putting some money down on the Blue Jays right now? Well, we have that line off the board right now, but they were a huge, huge underdog before the season. Look, I bet on them to win under 27 and a half games. I'm pretty sure I'm going to be out some money right now. Uh, I thought the the two East divisions that they had to play against were too good, but they keep getting the job done. The Yankees have been awful. The Red Sox have been awful. Uh, the Phillies are, are doing the Philly thing again. So, yeah, it's uh, if you can get in on them, it's not going to be the same value as you had before, but they look like they're going to make a little bit of noise here anyhow. Well, you heard it here first. Bet the Celtics. I It hurts me to say that. Take the Cardinals and, of course, the Buccaneers, who I agree. Let's see what Tom Terrific can do down in the sunshine in Florida. Our gambling expert, Chris Abbott from CoolBet.co, joining us here. Chris, we really appreciate this, buddy. Thank you. Hey, thanks again for having me, guys. Always a pleasure. Thanks, as always, to our buddy Chris Abbott from CoolBet.co, which, of course, brings you MWO Sports here on CKNX AM 920, CKNX.ca, and all the best podcast apps in the world. Ryan Drury still here with Steve Sabern and Clarkie. Uh, and, guys, uh, you know, lots of great sports news. Uh, we appreciate our guest Eric Smith coming on and, of course, Dan Schulman to talk Jays and Raptors. Exciting times for Toronto sports. Um, I just want to bring something up to you guys. Uh, obviously, uh, we're recording this episode on World Suicide prevention day um many listeners to the show uh will know that you know that it's a day that's very personal to me i lost my father to suicide i lost one of my childhood best friends to suicide of course and um you know 
Skip Bayless today made some comments that just really rubbed me the wrong way. Um, you know, if you don't know what I'm talking about, uh, go online. You can find them. Uh, the other day, Dak Prescott, who is, of course, the starting quarterback for maybe the most visible team in North America, the Dallas Cowboys, uh, came out and told reporters that he's been suffering through depression. Of course, if you don't know, um, Dak's brother committed suicide recently. And, and Dak was talking about, you know, his own depression, obviously, with the loss of his brother and throughout the pandemic and skip Bayless said on his show um just something that really rubbed me the wrong way Uh, you know i wouldn't say that i'm offended or anything like that and i'm not calling for skip's job or anything but he basically just said that he thought that um that he has no sympathy for dak that he he can't be feeling like this it shows poor leadership on his part i'm paraphrasing of course but this is essentially the gist of what he said and that it shows weakness and it's not appropriate because too many guys in that locker room rely on him to be a leader and this isn't the qualities that a leader show like i don't know about you guys i i was really rubbed the wrong way by the comments i think it's insensitive um and just i don't know i just thought it was a really stupid comment to make among many that skip has made in his career but this one just really i i again i'm not calling for his job or anything guys but i i really think he should issue an apology to dak prescott i don't know what your thoughts are on it well, I think one of the comments that he made uh, was wrong in the sense that it takes a lot of courage and leadership to come forward with a, with an issue like that. Um, you know, in the in the old days, in the old school, um, it may have been, oh, that's a sign of weakness. But I, I I think with dealing with a lot of people and and you know going through situations and working with stories and and groups that work with. Uh, uh, you know, mental support like West for Youth on on and uh, online, and get in touch with Hutch uh, in the Wellington area and a number of other organizations. That it takes courage to step forward and say, "I need help." Um, it doesn't matter if you're a team captain or you know the fourth line player. I mean, everybody needs help sometime, and um, there has to be some sort of understanding. And and you know, to say that it's a sign of weakness, I think. Uh, it's is shallow and it's very uninformed about what the actual actual issue is. Yeah, I agree. Um, you said it very well, Steve. Um, uninformed, uneducated on the topic, I think, are the two things that come to my mind. Um, and I also, you know, I want to give a shout out to our uh, sister station morning show host, Phil Main. You know, he's done uh, his run, Phil, run. Um, and unfortunately, because of COVID, it got uh, postponed this year. But he just announced on Thursday that uh, something is coming down the line. He'll have more details about that. So uh, follow him on, uh, on I guess it's Facebook. Um, and you can get some more information on on the Run Phil Run campaign that's going to be coming up this fall. So, uh, you know, a lot of kudos to Phil. We had him on this show last year. We'll have him on again this year to talk about what he's going to be doing. Um, and uh, when people do that, it, it's great. And I just think with Skip Bayless, he's just uneducated on the topic because you're right. It does take courage to do it. 
Yeah, I agree, guys. And I mean, uh, again, I just want to reiterate, you know, with the whole perceived Internet cancel culture that we seem to live in, whether you believe in that or not, I, I don't know that I really do. Um, I'm not calling for Skip to get fired or, or even suspended or anything. I would love to see an apology from him. I, I hope that Skip takes this as a learning experience. And um, I, I think that he just misstepped and and. Um, I, I was just really bummed out to hear his comments. That's all. And, and Clarkie, like you said, our, our buddy, Phil Maine is just a champion. He, he really cares about the Midwestern Ontario community as we do as well here on Midwestern Ontario sports. Um, I, again, we're recording this on world suicide prevention day. Um, and if you need help, there are a lot of great resources around here locally, especially for youth. Uh, suicide is the number two killer of youth in this country uh, and in North America, in fact, and it's the number two killer of middle-aged men as well, uh, which might surprise some people, but check the stats. It's true. And if you or somebody you know or love is is struggling with something, um, there are a lot of great resources around here. Steve mentioned a couple, Get in Touch for Hutch, West for Youth Online. Uh, you know, there are a lot of great organizations like Canadian Mental Health Association. Um, Doug Ford's government just announced, actually, as we record this show today, um, that they're going to be investing another $14.75 million to improve mental health and addiction services in the province. And and I commend that. Uh, again, if you need help or are struggling with something, reach out. Uh, it, it, it's worth it to your family, to your friends. Uh, we all want you to be here and, and you know get the help that you need and that you deserve. We really appreciate you listening to and watching this show. Again, you can catch us Friday nights at 6 on CKNX AM 920. CKNX.ca, you can find it podcasted on all the best podcast apps. And, of course, you can watch the show Friday nights at 8. Sunday nights at nine with our friends from Whiteman TV. Uh, for myself, Ryan Drury, Steve Saver, and Clarky, of course, Sandy, our unofficial mascot, uh, our producer Adam Olivero at Whiteman, and uh, all of our viewers and listeners, and of course our great guest Chris Abbott from CoolBet.co, Dan Schulman, of course, uh, of the Blue Jays uh, broadcast, and of course Eric Smith, who you can catch doing great work on the Toronto Raptors. We appreciate you listening to and watching MWO Sports, brought to you by CoolBet.co. Hey.